Welcome to Midwretched, friends. Welcome to Midwretched. I'm Tommy. I'm Nick. It is unspooky season weather. True. But it is still spooky season vibes. Like the trees on our street are insane. Mm-hmm. They're so the colors pretty. are wild. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a beautiful street. The trees are wild. Mm-hmm. Our pumpkins are uh, doing really pretty well, except that your dear husband's like caved in. Aww. Yeah. His is the only one so far that's now like unrecognizable. The other ones, like the jack o' lantern smiles, kind of look like they're wearing like dentures, you know? Like oh, that's my favorite. Like, yeah, I like it too. <laughs> and his just like, it just collapsed, which is sad because it was a really, really good jack o' lantern. His spoopy bat was so cute. I loved it. Yeah, he did a great job. We had a good little collection of pumpkins. We did. They look great on my porch. They're so cute. Yeah. Now, I went for a bike ride the other day, and it was just like the colors on the bike path were insane. Yeah, it's like that out here too. I had a couple of moments on this drive I was on this weekend where I literally gasped mm-hmm. and like teared up. Aww. I'm drinking my hot cider from the apple orchard that we went to yesterday. So Nice. I am drinking from a local winery. This is a Tabor Hill Tremonette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're doing from one of our delightful western michigan wineries lovely we're doing all our yeah. scene setting to build up to the fact that it is a lovely day for an exorcism it is a lovely day for an exorcism and i cannot wait to hear about this uh i'm so psyched i i s- texted you a couple of things over the course of researching this just because i was mm-hmm. angry yes <laughs> yes we're gonna build up to those things <laughs> yeah i've been like kind of withholding my righteous anger because i feel like i'm probably gonna have a lot of like internal conflict about this case i don't have any internal conflict about this case but yeah we'll talk about it here in a minute because i come into this case with very specific biases and i think that you do as well yeah sh- do you want to do you need to air those out for a second just to yeah. or no um, I wrote it into the script for an airing of biases and airing. Okay. Okay. So we'll do that then. We'll do that. But today mm-hmm. we're going to be traveling to Erling, Iowa and mm. the year 1928. Mm. So not too far from exactly where we were last episode. Yeah. And only, what, uh, 17 years later. Yeah. And we're going to be discussing the exorcism of Anna Eklund. Are you excited? Yeah, and the name is a little familiar, so, and I have not, like, looked into your case at all because I wanted to keep myself, like, virginized for Mm -hmm. it, but. There are various movies. One uses her name, I think another one. One uses this name. This is a pseudonym. The other one, I, there's another movie that I believe uses her actual name. Oh, really? Okay. So Anna Eklund is a pseudonym? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into her actual name. Uh, her actual name ha- was protected basically until well after she passed away. Mm, okay. So the case kind of is well is more known as the exorcism of Anna Eklund. So that's the name mm. that I'm just going to kind of go with throughout the course of our story. Just to okay. be less confusing. Perfect. Let's do it. So most of what people know about exorcisms comes from movies and TV. And most people don't have any firsthand experience with exorcisms. Or kind of knowing really what they look like. Despite Mm -hmm. the fact that according to a 2018 Atlantic article, American priests are receiving more requests for exorcisms than ever. Mm. Fascinating. Exorcisms at least were on the rise. 
The case that we're going to discuss today is often described as one of the most well-documented exorcisms in history. But even with that, we have really limited information. The reports that we have come primarily from bits of information shared many, many years after the event by the exorcist and his assistant, which were shared with a German priest named Karl Vogel. I know Father Vogel. You know yeah, Father obviously Vogel? Obviously not personal, but... <laughs> I wonder if you've ever read... I have read his book. So you have read Be Gone, Satan. I have read Be Gone, Satan. Okay. Well, then you know the story. Oh, that's Anna Eklund. That's Anna okay. Eklund. I haven't read it since I was a teenager, but okay. Okay. So what you might not know, we're going to talk about this whole story. What you might not know is Be Gone, Satan was actually written as an educational pamphlet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written in 1935, with the original intent was to educate seminarians, so men studying could be priests and monks themselves, to educate them on the power of the devil. It was eventually translated into English in 1973 by Reverend Celestine mm-hmm. Kapsner, where it meandered its way into a popular following, including Teenage Tommy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally see you reading this as a teenager oh i sure did i sure did and you know what's tough is that like true accounts of like catholic exorcisms Mm -hmm. like written as like autobiographically or like firsthand accounts are actually really rare because of kind of like the cone of silence that exists within the church about them so there were like three books available like overall you know um when i was in high school reading about this stuff and that was one of them so and even this because of this book it's considered like the best documented but again remember that's still second and third hand accounts of what had happened regarding the original documentation those records are kept by the church most likely at the vatican or kind of a safe um document storage facility Mm -hmm. those records are sealed and this is what one article that i read um said about the original documentation quote Highly detailed notes on this case have been stored in a seminary library for many years and sealed with the message. These are not to be published through the press or from the pulpit. Mm. So even after that, I did a scouring of newspaper archives through newspapers.com and found no mentions of this event. Yeah. I found mentions of Father Theo, who we're going to talk about, and I found records of the church and the churches where he served. No records of this specific event. That is so interesting. Erling, Iowa was chosen specifically because it's a very, very tiny town. In the 1920s and today, it has less than 500 people. Wow. And it was chosen specifically for that reason. It is out of the way. We can have more control of the press. We can have more control over who's going to be here and ensure privacy. Mm-hmm. So given the age of the case and the very limited facts, so much of what we're going to talk about is based on one or two sources and then a lot of, you know, assumptions, internet sleuthing, filling in the gaps, (laughs) speculation Mm -hmm. and interpretation of the few facts that we have, which makes this really tough to tell, I think, in a really honest way and non-skeptical way for me at least. Mm -hmm. People have been able to track down some birth records, do a lot of Ancestry.com sleuthing, but that will only give you so much information about who these people are. Mm. So 
it's very tempting when we tell this story to go into the dramatics and to go into the spookiness and to kind of give into a really crazy narrative. Yeah. But this is where I have to kind of lay my biases out there. I am a skeptic. I'm an atheist. I'm also a clinical psychologist. And that is the brain and the eyeballs that I approach all of this information with. Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe in most of what we're going to talk about today. I'm open to it. I would love to be convinced. Yeah. Um, but I also live by the doctrine of grand claims require grand evidence. And we'll go over what we have and we'll see if that's grand evidence. <laughs> so that's my bias. Tommy, tell yeah. us your bias and your history with this. <laughs> so, okay so story um, time <laughs> i i worry a little bit the dynamic is like um smart scientist and her woo-woo friend um i mean that's been our dynamic since we met. <laughs> just kidding just kidding no i think we have very different perspectives on things Yes. I am painfully yes. skeptical about just about everything. My initial instinct whenever anybody tells me something is to not believe it. Whether yeah. that's smart or not, I don't know. I'll have a conversation with my therapist about. <laughs> sure, yeah. And interpersonally, I'm much the same way. However, mm -hmm. so uh, the way that I come to this kind of stuff is, um, so I was raised a cradle Catholic for sure um, from a Catholic family that – See, I feel like a lot of times, like, we think of Catholic families as these really, like, um, kind of super strict, like, by the book, kind of, like, fundamentalist um, people. And, and certainly there are Catholic families like that. That was not my Catholic family. Mm -hmm. My Catholic family is, like, um, interested in, like, mystic very much mysticism. Um, there was always kind of, like, a, a, a strong, like, cross mark between – the Catholicism and I think kind of old world mysticism in a way. So like we spent, you know, time growing up at metaphysical shops and things like that. And those practices were kind of like woven into the fabric of Catholicism. So in large part, like the Catholicism that I grew up in was really steeped in the idea that if you believe in heaven, if you believe in hell, if you believe in all these things, if you believe in saints and angels and and all and life after death and all that stuff and by necessity you have to believe in the dark end of that as well mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so you know as an adult i have certainly um rejected the catholic church in many ways however a lot of that stuff does kind of still have its tracks in me for sure i had two semi-prominent midwestern exorcist priests in my father's fam or my grandfather's family he had a cousin and an uncle that were um, prominent enough to like travel and and perform exorcisms and and things like that. Uh, not in a totally different time frame than what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you know we're talking about like contemporaries to uh, my relatives. So um, and they would have been based in like Mid Michigan. But so I certainly come to it with a lifelong interest and healthy fear of of these things and I, I can't tell you like to what exact degree my openness stops and my skepticism starts but my barometer is certainly lower than yours yeah yeah mm -hmm. and I think you say like it feels kind of like you know scientist person versus woo woo kind of spiritual person 
to me, I often feel like it sound, it feels like you're like that warm, empathetic person, and I'm like that cold, like calculated person. <laughs> <laughs> Which has been our dynamic for like 20 years, right? Exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I think like, um, you know, I, I think we're both intelligent, bright, educated. And I think that we're you both know, more generally than skeptical than women, yeah. right? And able um, to look at events and facts and just sometimes come away with different interpretations. Exactly. And I think my interpretation just always leaves a, a cracked door open, I would say. I slam you know? doors. And maybe it's just a crack. Maybe the door is halfway open sometimes. And I, I will always also just come down to like, if nothing else, I will tend to believe that the people involved believed what was happening to them. And we'll come back to it, but I really do believe that the people involved believed what was happening here. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of times when I will call out when I feel like something is a scam, when Mm -hmm. I feel like somebody's playing or hurting somebody else. I don't think that that's what was happening here. Yeah, and I'd like to think that we have all the answers, but I think that we don't, and... I don't know, I feel like kind of growing up hearing some of the stories that I heard and and having some of the experiences that I've had, I think my door is just, yeah, the crack is a little bit more open. Mm -hmm. That's all. That's fair. You know, I'm not dumb. (laughs) And I'm sure our listeners are somewhere within our spectrum of thinking Mm -hmm. or outside of it, and that's okay, too. Listen, weigh what you hear, weigh what we talk about, what you've heard in other stories and other tellings of this. Y'all let us through the speakers. That's fine. I do that with totally. mostly like my favorite podcasts. That's usually the times it happens the most. So yeah, yeah. When you're like really invested, when you got really mad about the brags. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> I got so mad at one the other day. But I'll tell you about it later. All right. Anyway, let's dive into our story. I want to start off by introducing and kind of giving a little background on our kind of two main folks here: Father Theophilus Reisinger and Anna Eckland. We are going to start off by talking about Father Reisinger, who was known by his parishioners as Father Theo. He was originally from Bavaria, Germany, a place that I mm-hmm. still do not believe is real. It, <laughs> I've been there. It is real, and it's beautiful. No, it's some fantasy land between Middle Earth and Candyland. Mm, it does look like that, though. <laughs> to give people an idea, a random quick wiki that I did of Bavaria just literally typed in Google, typed in Bavaria into Google and brought it up, just out of pure curiosity, told me that Bavaria is known for, quote, its pristine countryside, clean air, wealth of culture, and infamous laid-back Bavarian attitude. Nice. I don't believe it's real, but I want to be there at the same time. Mm. Father Theo was born in 1868 and grew up on a farm with his parents. He actually grew up a pretty sickly child. The illnesses were not named in the records that I saw, but he was relatively ill, kind of limited in what he could do as a child. And I assume kind of found some refuge in the church and in reading the Bible. As early as age 12, he expressed wanting to join the priesthood. Mm-hmm. And by age 22, he was off to seminary. He was described by one of his instructors this way. This student distinguished himself by untiring diligence and inflexible energy, as well as by his modest demeanor and holy enthusiasm for his future vocation. His Mm. moral rectitude, no less than his gratifying achievements in the various branches of study, give every promise that with God's help, his heart's most cherished desires will be fulfilled. Nice. Yeah. He 
originally wanted to be a monk and kind of stop his studies there, but he was really encouraged to continue studying to be a full priest. Mm. One thing to note about Father Theo that I think, just to help you kind of get an image of who he is, is that Father Theo was actually a Capuchin priest. Capuchin. Capuchin? Really? Yeah, sorry. Capuchin. Capuchin? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Capuchin. Mm-hmm. All right. I like my way of saying it. It sounds cuter. It does sound cuter. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Capuchins are a branch of Franciscan Catholics known for their devotion to piety, modesty, and poverty. Mm-hmm. They stand out from other sects of Catholic leaders because rather than wearing the black cossacks and collars that we typically associate with priests and especially kind of that image that we have of an exorcist, Capuchins wear the plain brown hooded tunics and long beards that are reflections of their commitment to modesty and their rejection of any reflection of wealth or status. I briefly dated a guy that went into the Capuchin seminary and then didn't make it. <laughs> That's how Catholic I am. <laughs> That's how, oh, dang. Yeah. That's how culturally Catholic I am, I should say. Wow. Was mm-hmm. he, like, already, like, into it when you were dating, or was that later? Oh, later. He, w- I mean, he was very devout. We definitely met at youth group. Um <laughs> And we used to go to like Eucharistic adorations together and things like that. Yeah, I, I mean, we did for like a hot second. I but... only went to youth group because I knew a guy that had really good weed there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank goodness it's legalized now. Uh, you don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> I don't have to go to youth group for me. <laughs> now you can just go to the cute dispo next to the Starbucks down your street. It is a really good one. It's a good dispo. Anyway, fun fact, the name Capuchin comes from the Italian word for hood, Capuccio. Ah. This order is known, obviously, for their austere life, and this is what Father Theo would dedicate his life to from here on forward. Mm. Was your boyfriend not able to dedicate himself to an austere life? No, he's married with, like, three kids now, so. Huh, that's awesome. He didn't make it. That's a still, I mean, I, still a good Catholic yeah. line to go down. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he stayed with uh, the seminary for, I want to say, like, a good two, three years. He just couldn't quite pull the trigger, so to speak. I mean, that sounds hard, honestly. Yeah. Again, oh, yeah. like, I still, like, admire the hell out of people who do this and, like, stay devout to it, so. Yeah, I had a good conversation with our friend this weekend about how our university is, like, dying out because there's no new Jesuits. There's no young Jesuits. Anyway, following the completion of his education, Father Theo would travel to various monasteries, being stationed in New York City and Detroit before finding his home in Appleton, Wisconsin. I love Appleton. I don't know if your family members knew him because Appleton is, it's still Midwestern. I wonder if they knew I do kind of wonder, and, and, you know, we'll talk about this soon too, but like, um, all of this stuff is like very much cloaked in secret, right? Mm-hmm. So like uh, my relatives that were involved in this stuff you know they were all dead by the time I was like old enough to take an interest but my mom would say like they would not and could not tell you their story so it's not as though these guys were like going home and then like sharing with people what they you know were doing or had gone through or had heard like it was all very much cone of silence oh yeah no actually I have like a quote from father Theo that was from an article shortly after his death where he said quote as to my exorcisms I have not published a single word nor have I asked any person to publish a single word for me, but I have sent a complete account of all that has happened to the Holy See. Rome alone Mm. is competent to judge. Until Rome speaks, I shall be silent. Mm. 
and I am going to send you a picture of Father Theo just so that, you know, you can bask in his capuchin glory. bask in his glory. Oh, yeah. I know this picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I know this picture very well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. From the book? Mm-hmm. From my entire fucking life, like, <laughs> including the book. But, yeah, um, it's all, like, coming, like, rushes and waves of memories right now. I would so, not be yeah. shocked if someone in your family had a framed picture of Father Theo. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> either. I wouldn't be surprised if they've had dinner with him, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I need you to, like, go interrogate your family. Well, you know, what's really sad is that... Uh, Last weekend, my grandfather's last brother died, Aww. so he's kind of the last one. He was 97. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, so there's not really any more. No one left in that generation. Dude. Yeah, that was really sad. <sighs> that's always sad. Yeah. Ugh. All right, now awkward transition to mm-hmm. back to our story. All right. So that's Father Theo. Much less is known about Anna Eklund. Like I said in the beginning, this is in part, in large part for her protection. Anna Eklund, like I said, is a pseudonym, which was used to protect her for most of her life. Like you said, a lot of this is kind of shrouded in secrecy. I think some of it is to protect the church. I honestly do, though, think some of it is to protect the individuals that underwent exorcisms. And fairly Mm -hmm. so. She has since passed... There are speculations over when she passed and where she lived and all of that stuff. I think for the most part, we can just kind of let that go and let her live. The best records that we have indicate that her real name was Emma Schmidt or Hulda Anima Schmidt. For consistency, like I said, I'm just going to keep referring to her her as Anna. Mm -hmm. Anna was born in 1882. She was the daughter of German immigrants. Her mother's name was also Anna. It won't be too confusing because we're not going to talk too much about her mom. Most tellings say that her father's name was Jacob. Some of those Ancestry.com slews believe that he, like, kind of going through birth and death records, that her father was likely, his real name was Edward. Whether or not Jacob was a pseudonym or not, we don't really know, or if it was misinformation or something else, or this whole line of Ancestry is wrong. I believe that it was likely a pseudonym because we're going to talk about Jacob. He was not a great dude. Interesting. Okay. So her birth name was what again? Uh, It was Emma. Emma Schmidt or Hulda Emma Schmidt. Okay. Are you Googling all these people? I am just looking in Ancestry.com. I want to see what other, I want to see what other people are saying. There are no pictures of her. At least none that we know that are for certain of her. I'm just going to keep on going while you're ancestrying. Yeah, yeah, I'm listening. <laughs> Anna was one of nine children. She was born in Switzerland, where her family lived until she was two. And then in 1884, the family finally moved and settled in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hmm. The mother was a devout Catholic, something that she passed down to her daughter. And Anna Eklund um, really kind of glommed onto this as a kid. She really enjoyed going to church. She found it as a refuge. She found her peace there. Anna went to church, to Catholic masses, nearly every day through most of her childhood. Now, it's unclear, but around the time that Anna was around 8 or 10 years old, her mother disappeared from the scene. Hmm. My impression is that her mother passed away, although some some tellings also say that Anna mothers left, kind of left the family or abandoned them. 
Some say that she died. It's unclear. I think probably most likely she passed away. Oh, that is interesting. Just interesting. No, what you're saying is interesting that, like, it wasn't known. Like, I feel like it would have been really, really rare at that time for a woman to leave her family. So... That's where I think a lot of people are just kind of filling in the gaps where it says like, for example, the actual story on the actual records might say might just show Anna's mother disappearing Mm -hmm. kind of is just no longer in the records. And then people are filling in the gaps in whatever way. I think it's most likely that her mother just died. Yeah. I mean, that seems like the path of least resistance because I mean, it would be like extremely unusual for somebody to leave their family at that point. Exactly. That versus the high likelihood of the late 1890s, early 1900s, a woman with nine children dying. Right. That sounds way more likely. Yeah, yeah. After her mother's passing, Anna is left with Jacob. Now, Jacob is a piece of work. Mm. He is verbally and physically abusive toward Anna. He specifically mocked Anna's love and devotion of the church, degrading her on a regular basis for her commitment to attending mass and her commitment to following the church's teachings. Unusual, too. Uh, The whole thing is really interesting. Yeah, it's a kind of a weird family dynamic, right? Again, I'm not certain on kind of the on the family makeup here. I believe that Anna primarily had brothers and I believe she might have been the oldest daughter, Mm -hmm. which would have kind of put her in the situation of being the primary caregiver. Mm -hmm. So her father was absolutely terrible, abusive toward her, degrading toward her, especially toward the church. He had an extreme vendetta against the Catholic church to the point that even when given his last rites on his deathbed, something that it is likely that was done at Anna's request, Jacob insulted and mocked the priest that was giving him his final sacraments. Hmm. We're going to come back to that in a bit later, though. Yeah. With Anna's mother dead, she's left with her siblings and her father. And at some point, Jacob took up a mistress, Mina. Now, Mina was either his sister-in-law or his biological sister. Hmm. But she was taken in as his mistress. Mina had a reputation in in the community for openly practicing witchcraft and black magic. Now, what that means in Wisconsin in the early 1900s, I think is open to interpretation. All right, all right, all right. Now it sounds like my family. (laughs) I am them and they are me. Okay. (laughs) Oh, great. You're the Schmitz. Yep. (laughs) The Stahls and the Schmitz, one and the same. I don't know if you want to be the Schmitz. No, I'm happy to be a Stahl. Um, Now, Mina was no better to Anna than Jacob. She also mocked Anna's religion and her commitment, constantly criticizing, berating, and verbally abusing her. Mm. Anna would eventually drop out of school and begin working in a factory, likely working in a garment factory in Milwaukee. Again, not uncommon Mm. um, at her age, probably during sometime between 12 and 16, she started working. Mm -hmm. But she continued to attend church, seeing that as her only refuge from the abuse that she was suffering at home. Yeah. I'm about to read something that is universally reported, but almost always uncritically, mm. or with the most minimal of follow-up. So I'm just going to kind of paraphrase the party line here, and I'm going to give us some space to pontificate. Okay. Here we go. At some point between the age of 10 and 14, Anna's father attempted to engage her in an incestuous relationship, <gasps> but she refused. This caused tension between the two of them moving forward. Oh, God. 
in many, many of the tellings of the story, it's just kind of left at that. So I just want to give some space here for us to chat. Wow. I mean, that's horrifying. Yeah. Really, really, really horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. I think the reporting of it strikes me mm-hmm. for to kind of put out the idea there of like, oh, he asked her to be in an incestuous relationship and she said no and it was just kind of, he was just salty about it. Right. Yeah. That is not how those abusive dynamics work. No, no, it's not. I mean, yeah, I mean, not that I think we can like, you know, presume to know how every single like horrifying incestuous dynamic works. I just... Mm -hmm. And my, my sense is that people don't, like, ask to strike up casual sexual relationships within their family. With their, you know, adolescent daughters. No, no, that doesn't happen. Yeah. There's no way you can convince me that this stopped there. Mm-hmm. Jacob was just like, okay, I respect your choice. Yeah, no, that doesn't, that does not parse at all. At all. Because... This is a girl who lost her mother and suffered various types of abuse from her childhood onward. Yeah. And so around the ages of 14 to 16, Anna began showing major behavioral changes. Mm. It began with an inability to enter the church. (laughs) Although she wanted to, it was almost as though her body would not allow her to enter the church, accept sacraments, be near holy water or blessed objects, or even engage in prayer. Interesting. She reported feeling voices coming from, quote, below, telling her horrible and despicable things, pressing her to commit terrible acts. Mm. Others said that Anna began speaking of horrid sexual behaviors and acts that she could have no knowledge of. And Anna herself felt that she was losing control of her mind and her body, driving her into despair. Anna would be seen by various doctors, including psychiatrists around this time. Can you remind me, because we talked about this um, at one point, we talked about kind of like the timeline of like various diagnoses existing. Would we have had a word for schizophrenia at this time? We would have had a word for schizophrenia. That might have been one of the things that we, they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Hysteria was a word around this time as well. So they would have had those terms. We've known about schizophrenia for ages, yeah. and it's gone by various dementia praecocks um, and various things like that. In the tellings of this story, it is said that no doctor could diagnose her. They all said that she was in good health and could not identify anything wrong with her. Now, if we talk about kind of what they might have diagnosed her with, could have been schizophrenia or dementia praecocks, it could have been hysteria or other kind of various kind of pseudo terms that we would have had there. I think especially with the sexual component, Mm -hmm. they probably would have leaned more toward some kind of hysterical diagnosis. In terms of like what treatment would have been around that time, we're actually, this is a fun time in psychological history because we're smack dab in the middle of a crossroads. Psychotherapy hadn't really caught on yet. It wasn't until Freud's first tour in America in 1909 that it became more popular and more practiced in the U.S. Right. This is a huge time. This is really a huge, oh important God, time. such a cool time. Because yeah. we're also just starting to move away from the really torturous treatments that dominated most of the 1800s for cases of psychosis, dementia, and cognitive disabilities. So interesting. Actually, what we're at is kind of at the prime of the, quote, resting cure. Mm. 
the, the best kind of care. Girl, this is what you need. <laughs> <laughs> the resting cure was coined um, by neurologist S. Weir Mitchell, um, defined in 1871. This bastard. Yeah? This fucking bastard. I spent so much time on him when I was teaching IB English. I swear to God, we spent so much time on this really? guy. Really? Yeah. Oh. He has a huge influence on literature, especially. Oh my god, the yellow wallpaper is still one of my favorite exactly. stories. For anyone that doesn't know what we're geeking about. <laughs> um, S. Weir Mitchell's resting cure was proposed as a cure for hysteria. It included forced bed rest, restricted diet, massage, electrical stimulation of the muscles. I mean, it sounds lovely. It does. And like, take me to a country house and I will do this for a couple of weeks. Uh-huh. But it got bad when it was, like, f- mm-hmm. it was forced for weeks after weeks after weeks yeah. for treatments of literally anything. The most famous example is the yellow wallpaper, and it's for treatment of postpartum psychosis. Mm-hmm. And, well, depression turned into psychosis, and the woman was not allowed to see her child and isolated from the world. Yeah. So, anyway, that's just my little... You know, geek out moment. Mini side. Yeah, sorry guys, I got really that was a side quest. About that. <laughs> anyway, if you ever want to join uh, Tommy's IB, <laughs> I don't teach it anymore. I'm back in the hood. Sorry. <laughs> Given all of this, I find it really hard to believe that no doctor would have diagnosed or treated her this way. Yeah, because although it was the Midwest, Milwaukee was, you know, still a relatively kind of built-up city. So she's not in Iowa yet. No, she's not in Iowa. We're still in Wisconsin. And this drastic behavior change actually led to Anna's first interaction with Father Reisinger and her first exorcism. Hmm. There are very few records of this event. It seems that it was a more routine or what we would call like a minor exorcism. There are major exorcisms and minor exorcisms. Mm -hmm. Minor exorcisms are essentially kind of like any dispelling of demons yeah am i right in saying that yeah i mean to my knowledge it would be like um like certainly are going to be prayed over and there's going to be you know it could take like an amount of time but to what i understand it's like it's not the it's more of like a blessing like a a blessing deluxe i was gonna say like if you had if you had a priest come over to bless your house that would be considered like a minor exorcism right yeah it's like a a blessing like an enhanced blessing but it's not like the big like kind of spectacle of an exorcism to my knowledge, to yeah. my understanding at least. And my understanding of kind of this first exorcism that Father Reisinger did on Anna was that it was more of a minor exorcism. It was not this kind of drawn out thing that we're going to get into. Mm-hmm. But it appeared to be successful. Um, after this exorcism, Anna was still a teenager. She was able to return to her life and kind of return to what she was doing before. How old was she at this point? Do we know? Uh, between 14 and 16. Okay. But unfortunately, returning to her daily life meant returning to Jacob and Nina. Mm where she lived for another several decades, supposedly without possession or disturbance of any demons. Hmm. She worked, but it was my impression that she was the one of the family that was obliged to care for her father because it would seem that she stayed in the home until both Jacob and Mina passed. Now, recall that Jacob, while receiving his final sacraments, mocked and belittled the priest. He cursed at them. He told them it was useless. He told the priest that he was an idiot. He also put a curse on Anna. Yeah, you know who's going to eat that up? Demons. Demons that want to possess Anna. 
or Anna's psyche, which is a little fragile in watching her father on his deathbed curse her for her devotion to her religion. Yikes. Because it wasn't long after Jacob's death that Anna would once again find herself unable to attend church, riddled with voices coming from unknown depths and unable to pray. This time around, the signs started slowly. As she was struggling to practice her religion, I think that many of us after experience kind of complex grief and trauma probably might struggle with our religion or our belief systems. She struggled to pray, but then she began hearing voices again and started to feel compulsions to destroy religious objects. While she initially sought counsel from the church again, she soon lashed out at her spiritual counselors, even attempting to suffocate one of them. The signs worsened to the point that once again she could not even enter the church. It was as if an unseen barrier stood between herself and the church doors that she could not pass. And she once again began speaking of ungodly sexual acts. After years of being tormented by these symptoms, once again doctors supposedly telling her that there was nothing wrong with her, she called upon her previous exorcist, Father Reisinger. So Reisinger, who was still stationed in Appleton, Wisconsin, which is about from Milwaukee right now. It's about two hours by car. I'm sure it was a lot longer in the 1920s. True. But Reisinger answers, huh? So, yeah, that's true. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> How long by horse? Right. Yeah, probably oh, six hours if you have like a really good horse and you don't take a break. All right. Anyway, Father Reisinger gets the call and answers. Now, we're going to talk about how you do you diagnose a demonic possession. Mm. Do you know how you diagnose a a demonic possession? I mean, I know the broad strokes, but you get into it. (laughs) So there is a process called discernment. Mm. It is basically the diagnostic process. We love that word. Um, Catholics love that word so much. They use it for everything. Mm -hmm. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) (laughs) So in this discernment, they look for a few things. According to the text, I love this exorcisms and related supplications Mm. this is the text that this comes from fun fun title when diagnosing an exorcism you're looking for essentially three things revulsion or aggression toward religious objects speaking in languages that the person does not know and strength outside of what the person should seem to be capable of so these are the three things that father theo is looking for when he meets with anna before her before agreeing to go forward with an exorcism. So when Father Theo travels there, he meets the now 46-year-old Anna. He sees a woman absolutely repulsed by religious objects, compulsively destroying them, attacking church staff, attempting to choke, and showing fits of rage where she could damage and destroy objects that seemed outside of her strength as the small woman that she was. I say small woman. One description of her said that she was 5'7", And I was like, that's not small. Mm. So when Father Theo tried to speak to her, she foamed at the mouth and became enraged. When he recited scripture in Latin, she would respond in Latin, a language in which she should not have known. When she spoke to him in German, his own native language, she responded in German. And based on this observation, he said, this is a possession. This is meeting all three of our qualifications. Mm. Now, I have thoughts on that. Me too. What are your thoughts? Well, one, I think, obviously, revulsion. She has that. She has that. That's fine. And I think we could all discuss where that comes mm-hmm. from. 
but you know, we could be here all night. Outsized strength, I think it just depends on what you think is typical and what is not typical. What are you seeing? Yeah, that's the one I think is the most troublesome because I think it also has like a specifically sexist undercurrent, right? Like this tiny yeah. woman could never, you know. Yeah, exactly. The one that I dig at every time I hear about this is the languages one. Yeah. Because the languages they use are English, Latin, and German. Mm-hmm. She clearly speaks English. That's not a worry. Right. And she clearly speaks. I mean, she came from a German-speaking household, right? So there's no reason why she wouldn't be able to speak mm-hmm. German. Like, even if her parents didn't directly teach her German, like, she's around it. I assume there's other people in the community mm-hmm. that spoke it. Now, Latin. What your thoughts? I, I, I mean, I would be curious to know the number, but I think that most Catholics have probably heard their fair share of Latin. Mm-hmm. Some more than others, certainly. Also, like, uh, the further you go back, the more and more common a Latin mass would be, or a mass where at least some, some things are spoken in Latin. There, I mean, there's Latin spoken in every Catholic mass, like, in little mm-hmm. fits and starts, but... If you go back, Latin masses were really common. You can still find Latin masses today without oh, too easily, much easily, especially around the holidays and, like... If you think about like any Christmas carol, you can think about it. There's always like a a Latin version that like I remember hearing in church. Ades de fidelis, right? Like you hear that. So I wonder. I guess my first question is, what exactly was said? Because is mm-hmm. it just like babble in Latin? I think anyone with like exposure can kind of babble something in in a language they've had it like more than a passing exposure to. I also wanted mm-hmm. to question what her uh, education was like. Well, we know that she left school before the age of 14. Okay. So she wouldn't have had like formal language instruction. Right. Correct. But she also was described as a daily church attender. Mm-hmm. So if you attend church daily, and again, probably at that time, some of those were at least in Latin. Yeah. I wonder if that's like a Googleable statistic. Hang on. Uh, I could Google where I could find Latin masses closest to me, and I don't have to travel very far. Yeah. Like, but I'm, again, Chicago. Like, I remember, like, when I go to Toledo, there's way more Latin masses because it's an older Mm -hmm. town. Some sources will also cite Polish and Italian, which I think those might be a little bit more, those might convince me more if that was true, but those are also really inconsistently cited as languages that she could speak. Yeah. Also, Polish, if you're in a German neighborhood, you probably have some Poles near you, too. Mm. So. Yeah, I always think it's, like, it's really interesting when they talk about Italian in relation to this, because you do hear that a lot in exorcism stories. Mm-hmm. Speaking Italian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you think about that as, like, the language of the Vatican or a Vatican city, then I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Well, Father Theo himself, he... He was a bit of a polyglot. He learned Italian when he was in New York because he had a large Italian population. Mm. So he learned, he taught himself Italian. He probably also spoke Polish because a lot of Germans speak Polish as well. Yeah. It's not uncommon. Are you still looking up these statistics? I am. I'm seeing that there's now like currently an uptick in interest in Latin masses, which is interesting. I feel like there's an uptick in everything that's very kind of, that, yeah. we consider... Yeah, like vintage or like, anachronistic. Yeah. And, yeah. 
All right, I'm going to move forward while you look for that. Yeah. So based on these findings, Father Theo wants to move forward with the exorcism. But he gets the impression that this is not going to be a simple exorcism. This is not going to be like the first time. He also understands that the job ahead of him, he's going to need time and he's going to need privacy. He wants to protect both Anna and the surrounding community, so he seeks out a more isolated spot than Milwaukee. He contacts an old friend, Father Joseph Steiger, in the town of Erling, Iowa. Oh, interesting. Do you know Steiger, too? No, I'm just like, I wondered how we got to Iowa, because we haven't had any... We haven't talked about, like, her getting married and moving or anything like that. That's really interesting. Nope. Uh, Father Theo had a friend in Iowa that he knew was a very tiny town, a very tiny parish, um, and there was a convent there that he thought would be perfect Hmm. because of its distance. Because when I say tiny, I mean tiny. In 2020, it had, Erling, Iowa had a population of 397. Wow. Which is only a slight uptick from its population in 1920, 321. That's amazing. So, so St. Joseph's Catholic Church, a small Franciscan convent, was the uh, location of choice. And now we travel to Iowa. Hmm. Um, if for any reference, uh, Erling, Iowa is about an hour northeast of Omaha. Okay. Father Theo receives consent from Father Steiger and the mother superior of the convent and proceeds to get consent from Anna herself to travel by train to conduct the exorcism. So according to exorcisms and related supplications, it is best to get the individual's consent for an exorcism. So Anna did fully consent to everything, supposedly. Mm. Oh, I didn't know where to put this, but I just had to, I don't know, Medium is thirsty for Father Theo, and I wanted to share this. <laughs> um, just describing why Father Theo was the perfect fit for this, for this exorcism. Quote, he was blessed with a muscular body and nerves of steel. Stop. He had tested. <laughs> He had tested these out by a rigorous and abstemious life of self-denial, which had given him great powers of endurance. And indeed, it was something almost superhuman that was demanded of him. Oh, my. That is like a steamy book. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, medium's thirsty, but that's fine. So on a summer evening, Father Theo and Anna headed out on separate trains. Theo had said that they should travel separately and remain so until the beginning of the exorcism, that it was best for them to not be in a room together until the exorcism began. Well, on the train, Anna lashed out and attacked the priest who attended her, choking them until they were able to subdue her. When Reisinger's second train arrived, he transferred to a car that was provided to him. The car would fail to start, although no mechanical issues were ever found. His escort's apologized profusely for causing him to be late to the exorcism but father theo shrugged it off saying the devil will continue to try to foil their plans Mm. he knows what he's getting into yes he does (laughs) when anna arrived at the convent she immediately begins to lash out at the nuns she is presented with food that has been blessed with prayers and holy water and as she's it's handed to her she begins to purr like a cat and refuses to eat the purring evolves into howling and screaming, making unnatural noises and writhing. Hmm. She's purring. I guess my first question is always going to be, like, did she know the food was blessed and, like, sanctified with holy water? So this gets revisited constantly, and it said that she would always refuse and lash out if the food was blessed. 
even if they would bless it in secret she would lash out Mm. so even if she supposedly didn't know that it was blessed then she would still act in the same way but if they presented her with unblessed food she would be okay yeah interesting okay again this is all second and third hand accounts of people that were in like a highly emotionally driven environment which is why i'm like yeah how how much can we do this? And people that have a specific like interest and and thinking of it as an exorcism, right? Well, and again, what was the entire purpose of Begone Satan? Mm-hmm. It was to scare seminarians yeah. and teenage um, girls. And teenage girls. Did it scare you? Oh yeah. Okay. Well. I'm, I'm <laughs> oh yeah. I have like vivid memories of like specific chunks of that book and other books. And it's oh, still, okay. We're yeah. gonna. I have some quotes of them because, like, there was no point in trying to summarize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this went on any – the purring and the writhing, like I said, went on any time that she was presented with food uh, that had been blessed. Uh, sometimes it was described as lions or hyenas. Other times the bellowing of cattle, the barking of dogs. Um, lots of different – lots of different descriptions here. <laughs> The first in the series of exorcisms. So where there, there were actually kind of like three chunks of exorcism here that would occur between August 18th and December 23rd. Because Reisinger said that it should not be done continuously and that we should do it because we are going to need the rest. Mm-hmm. Reisinger is, assist- is assisted by rotating staff of nuns, nurses, and Father Steiger. The nuns were asked to tie the arms of Anna's dress to limit the use of her arms. They held her down as Father Reisinger entered to begin the exorcism. But almost immediately, she escaped the nun's grip and leapt from the bed, clinging to the wall above the door, sideways, gripping the wall in the ceiling. She hung up there, spitting, growling, and murmuring. The nuns managed to wrestle her down from the wall and back to the bed. As Reisinger begins speaking and reading passages to begin the exorcism, Anna continues to rave, froth at the mouth, and vomit. Reportedly, she vomits vast quantities of food, what looked like tobacco leaves, and what appeared to be macaroni. All of this despite the fact that she had apparently taken only teaspoons of milk and water in the days prior. But macaroni. Ew. Oh, God. That's so gross. (laughs) (laughs) It was said in Begone Satan that the room filled with a foul stench. Mm. Like, I hate the smell of vomit. I can't. Yeah, I know. I can't do it. When Anna spoke, she seemed to speak with her mouth closed, lips unmoving, speaking in Latin, German, and English. Mm. Begone Satan comments that she could have responded in any language that was spoken to her. But at other times, when she was spoken to, her responses were nothing more than bestial and demonic growls. Mm. Now, as we move through the exorcism, you will know, as your good exorcist self, that in order to complete an exorcism, you must learn the demons' Mm. names. So, I'm going to read bits of what is written in Begone Satan of kind of how Reisinger drew out the names of the demons. All right. Father Reisinger says, In the name of Jesus and his most blessed mother Mary, the Immaculate, who crushed the head of the serpent, tell me the truth. Who is your leader or prince among you? What is your name? Devil, barking like the hound of hell, Beazelbub. You call yourself Beazelbub. You are not Lucifer, the prince of the devils? No, not the prince, the chieftain, but one of their leaders. 
You were therefore not a human being, but you are one of the fallen angels who with selfish pride wanted to be like unto God. Yes, that is so. Ha, how we hate him. Why do you call yourself Beazelbub if you are not the prince of the devils? Enough. My name is Beazelbub. How long have you been torturing this poor woman? Since her 14th year. How dare you enter that innocent girl and torture her like that? Ha! Did not her own father curse her unto us? The interrogation would go on. And just a bit of a heads up, this conversation is going to include kind of comments on suicide. Mm. Father Reisinger continues his interrogation. Is then the father of the woman also present as one of the devils? Since when? What a foolish question. He has been with us ever since he has been, ever since he was damned. Then I solemnly command in the name of the crucified Savior of Nazareth that you present the father of this woman and that he gives me the answer. Are you the unfortunate father who has cursed his own child? With a defiant roar. No! Who are you then? I am Judas. What? Judas? Are you Judas Iscariot, the formal apostle? Yes, I am the one. What business have you here? To bring her despair so that she will commit suicide and hang herself. She must get the rope. She must go to hell. We devils are the ones that urge them to commit suicide, to hang themselves, just as I did myself. Did you not regret that you have committed such a despicable deed? Let me alone. Don't bother me with your fake god. It was my own fault. Thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm, I think that's really interesting. I, um, again, in my, like, rudimentary passing extra interest in exorcisms. <laughs> <laughs> like, Beelzebub is not, like, a surprising thing to hear somebody say, but then... Yeah, no, not at all. I think Judas is really interesting. I think that's really interesting. Because, I mean, you get that, like, that immediate idea of betrayal. And so, you know, like, the mythos of it is going to be such that, like, particular entities choose a, a person for a given reason, right? Um, mm -hmm. So if we go with the line of thought that it's legitimate, like, what would Judas have wanted with Anna Eklund? That's, a, that's an interesting thing to think about. Mm -hmm. And I think if we're going with the a skeptical line of thought, why would someone like Judas be on her mind? You know, kind of subconsciously mm -hmm. to to like call up in that moment, right? Like her dad makes sense, Beelzebub makes sense. I just wonder, and it's probably like the suicidal ideation, right, that like brings that to bear. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's really interesting from either angle that that would be who she would call up. That that would be the name that is brought forward. Did Judas hang himself? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Because, mm -hmm. again, kind of taking this from my, again, kind of a skeptical mindset that this is a woman suffering with very serious mental illness mm -hmm. uh, in a time that nobody would have understood that. Yeah, yeah. And who very likely was you know plagued with thoughts of suicide mm -hmm. i i can understand that i can understand feelings of betrayal feelings of betrayal yeah, yeah. and if you're somebody that's like searching for you know and she obviously like she was a a churchgoer and um you know a, a devout person i think that also implies that she would be like a very learned person when it comes to scripture mm -hmm. and things like that so 
Like it also just stands to reason that if you're somebody that's struggling with something, like you're going to find and, you know, look into more deeply, like the figures within your faith set that represent those struggles, right? Mm -hmm. Or just those kind of being called up to your mind. Because I don't, although she was, she didn't have a ton of formal education, my, my read on Anna is that she was a very bright kind of intuitive i mean i'm also just woman. i'm gonna argue that like if you're going to church daily or almost daily like mm-hmm. there is a huge amount of information that yeah. comes through a catholic mass like when you really think about how a catholic mass goes mm-hmm. there is just a huge download of information that's going to happen every single time so if she is going daily she's getting so there's so much just content like constantly going into her brain and, mm-hmm. you know, to process that, like, it requires a degree of, of intelligence, right? Like, And we think about her going to church daily, and we're assuming it's, you know, Catholic masses and everything like that. You know, I, I would wonder, and I would not be surprised at all, if she was also involved in, you know, Bible study classes and more of, like, kind of those conversational and social mm-hmm. things that were not just – that were more kind of like her sharing her kind of intellectuality and kind of expanding her mind in that way. There are also, like, extra rites that you can, you know, like, attend. Like, I wonder if she's going to confession a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier going to, like, Eucharistic adoration. <laughs> and that was, like, a different – that was apart from – catholic mass like that was a a specific like devotional practice that was like like we would go i think on like friday nights was there there's this like eucharistic adoration run by this like um young adult group in dearborn where we would go and there'd be like there's specific readings for eucharistic adoration you're not even taking eucharist it's not like part of that um necessarily Mm -hmm. but it is like a specific like meditation on um, the idea of Eucharist and so there's also like mm-hmm. specific things are like read and said so like I, I would imagine if she's that devout like she's going to all manner of like extra extra thing like there's extracurricular like Catholic activities that are not just going to mass right like there's all these mm-hmm. other things mm-hmm. that a person can do so I'm just thinking like there just had to have been like I said just like a constant rush of information coming into her head yeah, there's a lot to study mm-hmm. in the church. And I think it's very easy to get kind of confused with like a lo- the way that a lot of people go to Catholic church, the way that I went to mass when I was younger, mm-hmm. where it was very passive and very like not involved. Yeah. That that was not how Anna was involved in the church. Right. Yeah, that's just the, I'm I'm very curious about that. So eventually, Reisinger would drag out the names of five demons along with a choir of lesser demons. Who else did she bring out? Beelzebub, Judas, and Lucifer himself, along with Jacob and Mina, who were now residing in hell. Interesting. Hmm. After eight days dedicated to the exorcism, Reisinger and Steiger are exhausted. They have named the demon, and Reisinger says, we have to rest. This is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. They rest for about two weeks and return to the exorcism on September 13th. Now, you might wonder what Anna was doing during this time, because I did. Yes, I do. Like, what is she doing? (laughs) There's nothing written about that. What is she doing? I imagine that Father Steiger is going about his typical duties. Father Reisinger is studying and in his own home. 
I don't know what Anna is doing. I don't know if she is fully possessed at this time. I don't know if she's having periods of lucidity. I don't know. Interesting. Um, it said that she had no memory of what happened during the exorcism, what was said, what she said, or any of that stuff. Mm. Like, is she just chilling? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> she would need it, but she. I know. Well, and it said, so the second exorcism begins September 13th and lasts another 17 full days. Mm. We see the same level of writhing, growling, howling. Her body is becoming emaciated due to refusal or inability to eat. It said that while at times she appears emaciated and skeletal, there's other times where her stomach, her lips, and her chest swell to nearly doubling in size. Wait, say that again? While she's emaciated and skeletal at certain times, there's other times when her stomach, her face, her lips, her chest are all swelling, like inflating and deflating to nearly double in size. You know what's interesting? Hmm. Thinking about this as um, putting on like a non-skeptical hat and thinking about the thread to Judas, there are also particularly stories related to Judas where... And like, I think it's like in, in relation to her and punishment of his betrayal that specific parts of his body swell and fill with pus. Oh, yeah. yeah, what I can think namely, remember, like his stomach and his genitals. Mm-hmm. I think his lips being like swollen and filling with pus um, and bursting. So that's an interesting. That's fascinating. Note in the column of eyebrow raising. <laughs> That is fascinating. Mm. I, again, kind of like in my mind, I was like, you know, could this just be, you know, when you are starving for too long, your stomach will swell and all of that. That's not what is described. It really is described as this kind of like almost like fluid swelling and, you know, deflating and just, oh, yeah. Her body becomes distorted as she writhes and moans at the presentation of holy objects, including the Holy Cross holy water and a pix which is the little container that priests use to carry the eucharist in mm-hmm. here i'm just thinking about this like swelling for a minute let me just <laughs> uh, can i just read this yeah okay. is this the story of judas yep so this is an article called the death of judas a contradiction between a contradiction between matthew and acts so Uh, There are two accounts um, biblically of the death of Judas. One is in Matthew, and the other is in Acts, and they're not the same. So this article states, how did Judas die? Did Judas hang himself, or did he fall headlong? The problem between the two accounts in Matthew and Acts is obvious. In Matthew, Judas goes and hangs himself, whereas in Acts, he falls and has his insides burst out. How could these accounts even be considered able to be reconciled? The usual answer is given that Judas hung himself from a high place and afterwards the branch or wherever he hung himself from snapped and fell, thus having his insides gush out. However, I think the other well-known suggestion about this issue is more reasonable. It is sometimes suggested that the term in Acts, prenes genomonos, could be a corruption of the Greek term for swollen, presto, thus the original reading, prosteus genomonos, having become swollen. In other words, Judas hung himself some time past, and the deceased corpse swelled up and eventually fell down to the ground or burst, or did so while hung. I mean, that's unsurprising that a, like a body becomes swollen as it's like decaying. Yeah, super common. The early 
church father Papias of Herapolis recorded in his Expositions of the Sayings of the Lord, which was probably written during the first decade of the second century AD, that Judas was afflicted by God's wrath. His body became so enormously bloated that he could not pass through a street with buildings on either side. His face became so swelled up that a doctor could not even identify the location of his eyes using an optical instrument. Judas's genitals became enormously swollen and oozed with pus and worms. Finally, he killed himself on his own land by pouring out his innards onto the ground, which stank so horribly that, even in Papias' own time a century later, people still could not pass the site without holding their noses. This story was well known among Christians in antiquity, and was often told in competition with the two conflicting stories from the New Testament. That would be Acts and Matthew. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Food for thought. Food for thought. The swelling is really, like, it's an intriguing part of the story. I also wondered, though, like, like you said about, like, just that, like, bloating that comes with, like, malnutrition. Mm-hmm. I also wonder, like, if she's, like, biting her lips so hard or if she's, like, taking on, like, some sort of, like, injury to her mouth by biting or whatever that would cause that to happen. Yeah. I think physically there are lots of reasons why you would see swelling. Infection, if she doesn't, they're not taking care of, like, you know, she's tied to a bed for most of this. Mm. And I can only imagine she's biting her lip, scratching herself, and, you know, all of these things are swelling. Again, and this is, like, my very skeptical kind of reading of it, a lot of this is being witnessed by people in such a high, emotionally fraught environment that they are all terrified and it is being encoded into their brain in a terrified manner yeah you know again i don't know if anybody who tells this story any of the nuns who would share their side father steiger if they're like maliciously lying about this i really don't believe that right i do believe everybody in this room was absolutely horrified Mm -hmm. by what was going on getting back to the story Anna could reportedly tell, even if these objects, the cross, the pics, that if they were in the room, even if they were hidden under somebody's garments, snuck in by the nuns or otherwise disguised, the food that she would continue to refuse to eat any food if it was blessed with holy water, even if it was done in secret. At one point, Reisinger begins to recite the prayer of St. Michael. Mm. St. Michael being the leader of the faithful angels, the angel that cast Lucifer himself into hell, or the body that held Anna that was being possessed, screamed, howled, and became distorted, screaming so loud, refusing to allow Reisinger to even be heard during the recitation of St. Michael's prayer. Interesting. She lashed out at him, her body attempting to tear away from the bed that she had been tied to. It was said that the nuns and Father Steiger, who witnessed the exorcism, that Anna became difficult to look at. Hmm. The smell of vomit emanated from the room. She would bloat to twice her size in her abdomen and writhe throughout the bed. At some moments, she seemed so weak, but at other ones, she had the strength to bend the iron bed frame as she lashed out toward the priests. Hmm. In calmer moments, when she wasn't screaming and howling, she mocked the staff that attended to her, calling out errors in their religious symbols, such as the location of the nails in Jesus' hand on the feet on the crucifix, or making fun of the cheap papier-mâché crosses that some of them held. She began calling out the sins of the nuns and the staff in the room, their most embarrassing secrets that they have never told, even in confession. So apparently this is religious canon. Tell me if you've ever heard this before. But demons can know all of your sins, but only the ones you have not confessed. 
The sins that you've confessed have been forgiven, and thus the devil can no longer know of those sins. But unconfessed sins that have never been forgiven, demons are allowed, demons are able to hold those against you. Yeah, because that's like their fodder, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I have heard that before, yeah. The demons then tor- turned their attention directly to Father Steiger. They began to threaten to turn the church against Father Steiger, that they would cause him shame and disgrace. And then they began to physically threaten him. One of the stories goes like this. One Friday, following his typical Catholic mass, Father Steiger gets a call from a parishioner's family. The parishioner is very sick, not likely to survive, and the family has requested that Steiger come out directly to give the last rites to the man. Steiger agrees and takes his car out to the country roads, the roads that he has driven a hundred times. Although unsteady, he is more than familiar with the bumps and twists and turns in the country roads. He gets out to the family's farm, completes the last rites, and turns back home. Feeling somewhat anxious, remembering the demon's threats, he says a quick prayer to his patron saint, St. Joseph, for a safe journey home. Suddenly, just as he comes to a bridge, it's as if a massive black cloud unfolds directly in front of him. So dark, it's as if his eyes were blindfolded, and Father Steiger veers off into a ravine. His car crashed into the railing of the bridge with an indescribable force. He had jerked the car into low gear, and now the auto, a complete wreck, was hanging on the trellis, about Mm. threatening every moment to fall into the abyss in the ravine. Steiger manages to survive and gets away from the accident with minor injuries. He gets the help of a local farmer who aids him in pulling the car off of the, the cliff of the ravine and is able to make it back to the church. As Father Steiger gets back to the parish, he's confronted by the demons possessing Anna, who say, quote, Today he pulled his proud neck and was outpointed. I certainly showed him up today. What about your new auto, that dandy car that was smashed to the smithereens? It served you right. The demons would then go on to brag that they are the cause of auto accidents that kill people. They say they stay in the shadows so that nobody nobody suspects that it's them. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that... I guess I mean, the question that we're just going to continue to have about, like, the people that are writing this account for what purpose? Like, when you first start, talked about, like, you know, her being able to, like, mm-hmm. recount the sins of all the nuns and stuff in the room, like... My knee-jerk thought is like, okay, so it's like a psychic where you go to like a, a psychic reading and they're like, do you have a man with a J in his name? And of course, everybody and their brother knows a Jim, James, <laughs> John, Jeremiah, Jerry, whatever, right? John. Um, so if it's like, ooh, one of you nuns has like definitely had sex, it's like, well, that's probable, right? Yeah, like how targeted and specific were these versus like, oh, we right. caught you Doing with your hand that's in the like cookie very, jar. Very we likely. saw you yeah. like, yeah, so, eyeing that but negligee. That's that is very interesting. Yeah, right. Shortly after the car accident, Father Reisinger would end the second round of exorcisms. Father Reiger would not return to complete the final exorcism. And I think that's just a good time to like kind of just continue to recollect this idea that like whatever like layer of skepticism that we're approaching the story with like it is almost a guarantee that the people involved were very much considered like uh considered to be legitimate right so oh yeah they were absolutely bought in and adequately terrified for what they believed themselves to be facing right fucking full everybody in this room 
is terrified. They they are all they're nuns and priests and you know nurses and staff to the convent. They are fully bought in on what is happening. And even if they weren't, it is really hard to discount the power of like high emotion in a group. Of like how you encode that and the fear that kind of comes into everything that you see. So, oof. All right. So we're going to get into the last round of exorcisms. Father Theo would resume after more than two months he took off. And they would resume in December. At this point, the staff was terrified for Anna's health. She was looking deathly. She was thin. She was starving. She had no color in her face. The nursing staff was concerned that she wouldn't be able to survive another exorcism. But Father Theo appeared less concerned, saying that her appearance was just a trick of the devil. And he felt that he was getting close to his last chance to expel the demons. So he continued in the last eight days, battling night and day against the demons. Lucifer, Jacob, Mina, Beelzebub, and Judas all screaming and retching through the body of Anna while Father Reisinger argued and recited prayers. The final three nights leading up to December 23rd, Reisinger battled the demons nonstop. Rotating nurses and nuns were on the verge of breakdown at the sight of the two. The smell, the sounds coming from the room of the exorcisms. Father Reisinger was described at this point as looking like a walking corpse. Mm. I'm going to read another exchange between Reisinger and the demons as he continued the exorcism. Just to kind of give you an idea of kind of how this all played out into the end. So Father Reisinger insisted that the devil should depart and return to hell. The devil re replied in a growling to tone, quote, How can you banish me to hell? I must be free to prepare the way, to prepare the way for the Antichrist. And again, he spoke out of the possessed woman. We know a lot. We read the signs of the time. This is the last century. When people will write the year 2000, the end will be at hand. I mean, it is pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> this era does pretty much suck. Well predicted. Satanus. Well predicted. The end might be near at hand, but we are st unfortunately still alive. Um, at one time, the evil spirits howled and yelped fearfully when the prayers of the exorcisms were solemnly pronounced and when the blessings with the relic of the cross and the consecrated host were given. Quote, oh, we cannot bear it any longer. We suffer intensely. Do stop it. Do stop it. This is many times worse than hell. Father Theo then responded, saying, therefore, depart at once, ye cursed. It is entirely within your power to free yourself from these sufferings. Let this poor woman in peace. I conjure you in the name of the Almighty God, in the name of the crucified Jesus of Nazareth, in the name of his purest mother, the Virgin Mary, in the name of Archangel Michael. Oh yes, they groaned. We are willing, but Lucifer does not let us. Tell the truth. Is Lucifer alone the cause of this? No, he alone could not be. God's justice does not permit it as yet, because sufficient atonement has not yet been made for her. Uh, on the 23rd of December, around 9 p.m., Anna again broke from the grip of the nuns and her bindings. She was flung toward the ceiling. Like from her bed, just flung up to the ceiling. Father Theo yelled for the nuns to pull her down. Yelling and saying, Depart ye fiends of hell. Begone, Satan. The Lion of Judah reigns. Anna's body gave way and she collapsed from the ceiling back onto the bed. She let a piercing shriek and trembled violently. The voices saying, Beelzebub, Judas, 
Jacob, Mina, could be heard. They were repeated in a fading tone until they could no longer be heard in the room. And the words were added, hell, hell, hell. While the room was in a confused and terrified state, Anna opened her eyes and spoke for the first time in her own voice. From what a terrible burden I have been freed at last. My Jesus, mercy, praise be Jesus Christ. And from then on, Anna was freed from the demon's grip and recovered quickly from her emaciated state. She was once again able to speak using her own voice and take part in church services. Hmm. So basically, after those final three days of nonstop exorcisms, they left her body. Hmm. Yeah, right? Hmm. You look unsatisfied. Well, I am deeply unsatisfied. I am... I want to know what the rest of her life was like. Good question. Yeah. I have that. Okay. So then I'll be able to draw a conclusion. But tell me about the rest of her life. So after the final exorcism, Anna was released, reportedly in good health. She would return to Erling several months after, only to visit the families in the town to send their thank you for keeping her identity private um, and for supporting the, supporting the church while she was undergoing her exorcism. It's reported that she remained faithful to the church and appreciative of all of their time. Um, however, this would not be the final exorcism that she underwent. Father Theo would admit that Anna completed several exorcisms throughout the course of her life. Some minor, some voices and demons that she learned to fight back herself, but that throughout the course of her life, she would often return to him for another exorcism. Hmm. As she grew older, the reports would be that the demons were replaced by angels who advised her. These angels gave her premonitions of the future. She reportedly predicted the birth of the Antichrist, which ended up being researched many years later. What was the date of the birth? Oh, I didn't include it, but let me... Yeah, there's no date given in... Dang it. Father Theophilus, basing his opinion on the numerous experiences of cases of possession, believes that the hour of the Antichrist is not far distant. Mm. Lucifer himself is present for about 14 days in the Erling case. With all forces of hell at his disposal, he tries utmost to make this a test case. But you can't just tell me that we know when the Antichrist is coming and then expect me not to... About Antichrist, in my exorcisms, the evil spirits, and among them Lucifer, had made it known that Antichrist is already born. But be sure, Reverend Father, I want the truth from the mouth of the infallible truth from Christ himself. This is Reisinger speaking in a letter um, written to the author of this book called The Reign of Antichrist. Um, so continuing that, he says, Many things Christ had revealed already, but only during the Mass. Therefore I told my mystic. Ask Christ whether Antichrist is already born. Christ appeared to the mystic during the Mass at the consecration, lifted up the cross, bleeding from all wounds, after the consecration. He approached her and remained until the Agnus Dei and gave the following answer. Yes, Antichrist is already born, but he is yet too small and too young, wherefore he cannot appear yet publicly. At the age of 33 years, he will begin his persecution against the church, and this will fall into the year 1952, and his end will come in the year 1955. After some years, I had Christ asked something about Antichrist, but he answered, These questions cannot be answered. 
Tell your confessor. He knows that Antichrist is already born. He knows where he lives. He knows when he will begin his persecution, when his end shall come. He knows his name, 666, and this should suffice him. Yeah, so this um, letter was written on April 18th, 1940. So, yeah, so this this Antichrist would be 33 in 1952, and this person would have died or his end would have come in the year 1955. So, yeah, that's what I found. The Antichrist would apparently come to in 1952 when they would reach the age of three, the same as Jesus when when he died. Father Theo takes this protection seri- protection seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's eerily similar to another mystic's prote- projection, a woman who lived in the 19th century named Catherine M. Reck, mm. who predicted that the Antichrist would come to the power come to power about 50 years before 2000. Ah, interesting. So it might not have been Anna's prediction, mm. specifically in terms of the date, but this person, Catherine Rex. Hmm. That's super interesting. Where are you? I have too many tabs open now. Oh, <laughs> I'm over here <laughs> this way. <laughs> Help. <laughs> That's really interesting. Okay. I'm sure you'll find a way to edit that little rabbit hole and make it sound not terrible, right? I'll try. No, I just have to find you. <laughs> you still haven't found me yet? All right, let's close Bro. this. <laughs> um, anyway. So Anna lives out the rest of her life, completing exorcisms of various levels with Father Reisinger. Obviously, neither of them would really talk openly about it. Anna never gave public interviews. She never spoke about this herself. And Father Reisinger never did either. Mm. Again, like he was very much sworn to secrecy in doing all of this. The nuns who served at St. Joseph's Parish would request transfer, saying that the trauma had made it too difficult for them to remain. However, until they were approached by Father Vogel, they would never speak of it either, mm. kind of at least not publicly. That's fair. I'm sure I'm sure they talked between them. Like, guys, you remember that? Sure you, you know what? I mean, maybe, but maybe not. Yeah. I think that cone of silence runs pretty deep. I mean, what else are you going to do if you're a nun? Gossip is probably one of the few things you got left. I mean, the things you're supposed to as a nun. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure is decidedly not gossip. <laughs> oh, shut up. Nuns gossip. <coughs> if there are any nuns listening, tell us how much you gossip. <laughs> I'm sure we have a huge fan base of nuns. We should. I know. Um, Father Theo would return to his home parish in Wisconsin where we, he would live out the rest of his life. Father Theo actually died um, November 10th, 1941, while assisting with mass. Like, he literally died at the pulpit. Oh, my gosh. Of a sudden heart attack. Oh, that's sad. I'm going to close up our narrative here with a quote from Father Steiger's housekeeper, mm. who was supposedly interviewed by Carl Vogel for Begone Satan. So this is the testimony of Teresa Wegerer, Father Steiger's housekeeper. She said, quote, I was a witness to almost the whole period of the exorcism of the Erling Possession case, and I can truthfully say that the facts mentioned in Begone Satan are correct. Some of the scenes were even more frightful than described in the booklet. 
There is not the slightest doubt in my mind that devils were present and I will never forget the horrible scenes, vile, filthy, and dirty as long as I live. Hmm. So, what do you think? I, well, I have been rattling off a couple of different thoughts in my brain. I guess um, my first thing is to kind of come back to the initial, like, kind of where we started as far as, like, unpacking our own biases and things like that. Like, I Mm -hmm. feel, as with most exorcism stories, there's a way to explain so much of what reportedly went on, right? Yeah. I do remain very intrigued by the particular, like, Judas, like, that being called up. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm always intrigued by the idea of like different languages being called up i think the latin is explainable but you know i mean there is a a sliver of a door open for me there as well so like if you're asking me to come to a like a statement about whether or not i think this was a real thing that happened i don't have that conclusion to make what i'm thinking about is you know as a as a show that is 99 percent of the time true crime what was the crime against Anna Eklund? And thinking about that philosophically, like the crime against Anna Eklund was that whatever this woman was suffering from, demonic or otherwise, she was not, she was only given help that we know of in one particular arena, right? Mm-hmm. And that she was not treated psychiatrically uh, or medically. And that feels like if there is a crime against her that feels like the crime unless we're saying that these demons were committing crimes against her which you know if that's the way you want to phrase it then like by all means but you know just thinking about like like Mm -hmm. what is justice in a situation like this Mm -hmm. i mean she lived she made it i feel like the the way that she lived after that is very curious to me because it sounds like it could be a metaphor for like well-managed severe mental illness right like i still have these like occasional episodes but i talk to my therapist and i do what i'm supposed to do and i i come out okay right but for her Mm -hmm. it's i still have like occasional times where demons bother me and i talk to father theo and i'm good right Mm -hmm. i've learned to manage them i've learned to reframe them as angels now and this is what it is yeah you know I can say at the time that this happened in 1928, I don't know there would have been some treatment options for her. I don't know how effective they would have been or if those treatment options would have felt more like a crime than this. Right, which is the, the other complication, too. I was going to say, I, I think if we really talk about the crime that was committed against her, it was all of the child abuse that she oh, experienced yeah. throughout throughout her life because I just, I fully cannot believe that she was not further abused by her father. There's no way. Yeah. There's no way that the first yeah. time that she was ever abused by him was him, like, asking for a, a sexual relationship with her as a teenager. There's no way. I just don't. There's, there's no, no way, way that was the first or the last time. Mm-mm. No. And I think that that is every time when I hear the telling of the story, I'm like, can we dig into this a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> can we be a little bit more, like... Right. Like... Yeah. I mean, the trauma that this woman went through. I also, I'm really interested because in when I was, like, Googling her a little bit, just kind of while we were talking, like, uh, it is inconclusive to the knowledge of the internet which Emma Schmidt she was in the end. There was one mm-hmm. that died 
like relatively young. I want to say it was like late 40s. And then there was another one that lived to be 81. They were both in Iowa and both in one place or another, you know, considered to be Anna Eklund. And those are like two very different outcomes, right? Like dying at 46 versus dying at 81. Well, she the exorcism happened when she was 46. Oh. So unless she died during the exorcism, which everything tells us that she did not. Then what was I seeing? Yeah, the one that I have seen that most people believe Oh, age 59. I'm sorry. It was 1941. Age 59. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think most people believe it was she died at 81. I don't know if that's just because that's what people would like to believe. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think when I look at this case, it is very, very hard for me to see it as anything other than a woman with chronic PTSD, complex developmental trauma, and developing symptoms of dissociation, psychosis, and this was the help that she knew how to get. Mm-hmm. And, it, and if we want to believe it, it did help her. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting perspective. Because, yeah, it does kind of, I think, like, beg the question, like, if it does help, quote-unquote, who are we to question it in that mm-hmm. sense, right? Like, she by all accounts, ended up living, like, a relatively okay life afterward. So who are we to question it, right? We can speculate that it wasn't a good life, that it was. Mm-hmm. I don't know, because it's also she had a right to privacy after yeah, this. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. So. Well done. That was really interesting. <laughs> Thanks. Mm, you woke up a, a part of my brain that hasn't been awake in a very long time. I do my best. When's the last time you thought about Judas? Judas's like death. I mean, I am shocked you still have all that knowledge in there. I mean, you know how it is. Like you've got like these like pieces of your brain that store like lyrics to the Macarena and the grisly like grisly details of Judas Iscariot's death, right? Like all in the same like section of Rolodex in my brain, I guess. But (laughs) yeah, that's super interesting. Ah. Anyway, I hope everybody liked that. I hope you followed along with our sometimes side quests. All relevant <laughs> side quests, though. All relevant. Yeah. I can say that this is this was a deeper dive, thanks to you, than I had planned on it being. So thank You're you. You're welcome. I am glad to be here. I feel like I have these like little subsets of like obscure and relatively useless knowledge that... <laughs> occasionally i get to trot out and it makes me really happy so thank you for allowing me to do so all right friend let's let's why don't you tell us about next week and then we'll close out and wish everybody a happy spooky season yeah i need to go to i need to plan like lessons and go to bed it's really late so next time we will be kind of returning to uh, kind of my style of case i would say Uh, And we'll be taking a look at the disappearance of Timothy Pitson, who was a young boy uh, who disappeared from uh, the Wisconsin Dells. And the circumstances surrounding his disappearance are very clouded and fascinating. And um, we're going to kind of explore the, the difference between what his family thinks happened to him and what some of the facts and I think kind of logical conclusions would communicate to us and those are two very very different things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so please come back for that case. it's a really interesting case it's really interesting 
Yeah, they were just, I think, just recently like, some updates related to his birthday and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 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 he would have turned 18 re- recently. So, it, like for his 18th birthday, one of his aunts kind of made some statements to the press. And um, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so we've got like kind of a, a really good sense of, of what his family thinks happened. Yeah, but definitely. I think, you know, if, if we're bringing skepticism to bear, uh, it really has a place in this case. I think that is one thing that we are good at is bringing skepticism to I bear. I think so, too. So, friends, come back for that, please. In the meantime, please talk to us on the socials at MidWretched. We love it and we love you. So keep talking, keep rating and sharing and telling your friends. Uh, we appreciate all of it. Yay. Yay. All right, right, friends. Have a good week. Have a good spooky season. Yes, it's always spooky season. No no matter when you're listening, happy spooky season. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye. Be spooky. sound right now that's like um a choir singing the names of a bunch of demons and people that sounds terrible people are using it to like um you know look at like the the 10 worst like lipsticks i own and it's like Beelzebub, asmodeus satanus lucifer yeah